Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is adultery. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, barbarian, Scathian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe themselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in per perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Please join me in prayer. Father, we freely admit to you that apart from you we can do nothing. And we can neither understand your word uh, nor be transformed by your word apart from the work of your spirit. So I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would give me the words to say and would give all of us both ears and minds and hearts to listen. And that the result of this would be that Jesus is exalted and we're made to be more like him. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the Christian life? How do you live it? What, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? When I was a child, the answer was fairly straightforward. At some point, you became a Christian. You got baptized and joined the church. You knew and obeyed the Ten Commandments. I might add, especially the commandment to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I quickly concluded from my parents' reactions to things that mowing the lawn on Sunday was the sin against the Holy Ghost that could never be forgiven. You did the things that you could check off on the little envelope we all filled out. Some of you are old enough to remember this. We had an offering envelope, and it had boxes on it. And clearly, what you ask about is what you care about. So what mattered is if you were present, if you brought your Bible, 
if you had read your Bible daily, if you gave an offering, and if you were going to the worship service. Those were the five things. And if you got them all, you had obviously lived the perfect Christian life that week. If you were really holy, like a super saint, then you also went to Sunday evening and Wednesday night church. Sunday night church being, unlike here, actually simply a repeat of Sunday morning, uh, only with fewer songs and a shorter sermon. And then Wednesday night being a prayer meeting in which we did very little praying, but mostly had another service just like the one on Sunday morning, only with an even shorter uh, sermon and, and a, a token prayer for all the needs of the church. That's what it meant to be a Christian. Now, as time went on, people began to get a little more serious about things. And I vividly remember in my teen years, this strange new word, discipleship, came up. Now, we had not heard the word discipleship before. We had not heard about making disciples because having grown up in settings where we only use the King James Bible, we heard, of course, that the Great Commission was, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And we didn't use the word make disciples. So suddenly this new idea of making disciples comes into play and you begin to think about, well, what is a disciple of Jesus? And Primarily what it meant at that point was you needed to learn certain things and some tools were created, survival kit, uh, master life, things that gave you some, t some information that you understood and that also got you into some practices, primarily the practice of sharing the gospel with other people around you. Then I got to college and I was exposed to groups like the Navigators and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and Crew that took the, the idea of discipleship a little farther, but it also primarily meant knowing the Bible and sharing the gospel. That's what it meant to be a disciple. Well, more recently, the pendulum has swung. It has swung away from what I might call information-based discipleship to obedience-based discipleship. And the idea now is don't fill their heads with, with all sorts of just facts. Simply teach them an inductive Bible study method and tell them to obey whatever they see the Bible commands them to do. Uh, don't burden them with, and I quote from one of these sources, heavy Bible doctrine, just teach them obedience. Now, as we look in the New Testament, I think we find an understanding of discipleship that is actually far more comprehensive than any of the ones I've just mentioned, that actually involves absolutely all of life. This text gives us a good idea of what Paul thought and taught about the Christian life. And if I were to summarize it, I, I would put it this way, Christian life flows out of Christian truth. Discipleship is shaped by doctrine. The gospel determines where we are to focus, what we are to kill, and how we are to clothe ourselves. And that really is the points we're going to look at. It's the gospel, and it determines where our focus is, what we're to put to death, and what we're to put on. The Christian life is very simply a matter of truth, and consequences. Truth of the gospel and its consequences in our lives. First, the truth. Consider the incredible statements that Paul makes in this, in this passage. And these are not things we're to do. These are just things that are. Simply things that are true. You have been raised up with Christ. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Christ is your life. When he appears, you also will appear with him in glory. The wrath of God is coming because of human sin. You have, past tense, actually perfect tense, you have put off the old self, you have put on the new self, 
And your new self is being renewed in knowledge in the image of God. You are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You've been forgiven by God, and you are now members of one body. And these, quote-unquote, heavy Bible doctrines are in fact the foundation of the practical things that Christians are supposed to do. They determine how we are to live. They are quite simply the gospel and its fruit in our lives. Let's think about them a little more carefully here. They remind us of the wrath of God. They remind us that God is a holy God and that He is appropriately hateful toward, wrathful toward, utterly opposed to everything that is sinful or evil. But they also remind us of Christ. Christ, who lived the only life that perfectly reflected the image of God. Christ, who died as our substitute, the sacrifice that actually satisfied that wrath of God that that justly is poured out on sin. Christ, who rose again in victory over sin and death and hell. And they remind us that because of Christ, we are perfectly and radically forgiven. These are all past tense. This is what is true because of Jesus. They remind us that we are now in Christ. This is one of Paul's absolute favorite expressions, and it really does in many ways sum up what he understands the Christian life to be about. We are in Christ. He is our life. We are so united to him that we died in his death, and we have been raised again in his resurrection. We have died to all that we ever once were, and we are now new creatures in Christ. We share in his resurrection. And our lives are safely hidden and kept in Him for all eternity. And so they remind us, these truths remind us of who we are now. We are God's chosen people. This is clearly an Old Testament reference. Uh, Israel was the chosen race of God. God set His love on a people. He chose them, and He chose them to be a light to the nations. He chose them to be the expression of who He is to the nations around them, and He chose them to be the instrument through which He would accomplish redemption for all the nations and peoples of the earth. That role has now been expanded from national Israel to everyone who is in Christ. So that we are now in that that incredible role of being, as it were, the Son of God, the one whom He has chosen to represent Him to the world. We are holy. Not in the sense that we all act holy, but we are holy in a positional sense in that we have been set apart for God's exclusive use. Um, just from a conversation earlier this week, reflecting on this word holiness, if you look in the Old Testament, you, you realize that some strange things were holy. Um, there are shovels that are holy in the Old Testament. There are candle snuffers that are holy in the Old Testament. All the stuff you used in the temple and the tabernacle was holy, not because it possessed any moral character at all, but because it was reserved for the exclusive use of the worship of God. It was His and His only, and could only be used for His agenda. And in that regard, we are now a holy people. We have been set apart for the exclusive use of God, and we may only be used, our lives and all that we have may only be used for God's agenda. We are set apart in that sense. And perhaps most incredibly, we are dearly loved. That's an amazing thing. We are loved as Christ himself. God loves those who are in Christ exactly as he loves Christ, which is an astonishing thing. And that is the foundation on which all subsequent calls to obedience must be based. 
It's because you are irreversibly, irrevocably loved so much that the love for you is the same as the love for Jesus. It is on that foundation that we are called to be obedient. We have, as it were, also died to who we were. We've put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed. So there has, been a, there has already been a radical change both in status and in nature of everyone who is a believer in Jesus. All of these things have already happened, and that's the starting ground on which we have to build. And if you don't grasp that, then you will turn the Christian life into a pharisaical exercise. We do this because of what Christ has already done for us. I might also add that what he talks about here is he goes on through the passage and talks about the fact that we have been called to be one body, that we have a new community, that we are not in this alone. We are in this as part of a fellowship of believers who we will see soon are an essential component of what it means to follow Jesus. And they remind us of our destiny. We will be revealed with Christ in glory. And we are being and will be perfectly conformed to the image of God. This, in in so many ways, is actually the point of the Christian life. And it fits in with the entirety of the biblical narrative. God created Adam and Eve in His image to reflect His glory and to represent His rule. In their sin, they deeply defaced the image of God. It was the intention that Israel would be the Son of God, who would reflect God's glory. But again, they reflected their fallenness and failed miserably in the task. But Jesus was born as the perfect image of the invisible God. Jesus was born as one who is both God and man, and therefore not only able to fully reveal God to us, but to perfectly show us what it means to be genuinely human as a reflector of the image of God. And those things are perfectly united together and combined in Jesus. We are now being progressively transformed into His image. And when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him face to face. Our destiny is to be made perfectly and completely like Jesus, so that we will reflect his glory and represent his rule perfectly. That is the point of the Christian life. That's where discipleship is headed. And that's what's happening already and is is inevitably going to be fulfilled in the life of every believer in Jesus. We're being conformed, and we will ultimately be perfectly conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus. So that's a whole lot of theological truth that Paul weaves into this very practical exhortation to live in a way consistent with the gospel that saved us. And this gives us probably the most essential point of all of this whole message that you cannot separate theology from practice. You can't celebrate truth from its consequences. You can't build an image of the Christian life that is untheological or undoctrinal. Inevitably, who we are is the result of the truth of who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. So, how and why are we to live the Christian life, to live as disciples of Jesus? We are to do it by the grace of God flowing from the truth of the gospel. This then is not information-based discipleship or obedience-based discipleship. This is grace-based, gospel-saturated discipleship. And it's the only kind that actually accomplishes the purpose of God in our lives. So that's the truth. What are the consequences? Well, there's a lot of them here. But I would summarize them as three things. And those three things are that we are to fix 
our attention and affections on Jesus. We are to put to death everything that is inconsistent with the character of Jesus. And we are to put on the fruit of the Spirit, which is a perfect description of what it means to reflect the image of God. So first, focus your attention and affections on Jesus. Now remember, everything I've just said is true of you if you are in Christ. So now, set your heart and mind on Him. We read it very clearly. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So literally, what this says is seek and think about heaven and heaven's King. Set your minds... Get your mind focused on the things of the gospel. See, what you think determines the character of your life. Where your mind goes is what your life will reflect. And we need to recognize the incredible importance of our thought life. Where does your mind go when it's otherwise unoccupied? When it's free to roam, what do you think about? As you process the things that happen to you in your life, Do you do so in light of the gospel or you do so in light of some other thing, some earthly agenda or self-centered agenda? Your thought life determines the character of your life and your affections drive the direction of your life. So Christian discipleship is shaped by a simultaneous transformation of our minds and our hearts, of our thought life and of our affections. And that is why the first thing Paul tells us here in this application section is set your minds and set your hearts on things above. Make sure that that is the instinctive orientation both of what you think about and what you care about. Biblical discipleship involves a transformed mind and transformed affections. And a transformed mind doesn't just mean you stuff your head full of Bible facts. It means literally that your thinking process is rewired by the Word of God. Um, In mission circles, we talk a lot about worldview. Uh, Everybody's got one, and the worldview of every culture on earth is wrong. Because the worldview of every culture is a deliberate attempt to process and understand life without reference to the living God. And what's involved in the Christian life is that the Word of God literally reshapes our thinking processes such that we see things through God's eyes. We value things through what God loves and values. We understand things in light of who He is and not in light of what the world sets up as a false understanding and value system. And so we are to set our minds there. That will provide the absolutely essential foundation for the rest of what we do. Set your minds and set your hearts on things above. Paul says we're transformed by the renewing of our minds in Romans 12. And you will invest your time and energies in what you actually truly value. So the first key to the life of a disciple is to seek after the things above. Your mind and your affections fixed on Jesus and on his truth. The second thing we see here is ruthlessly kill your sin. Show it no mercy because it means deadly harm to you. So notice the the sweeping statement Paul makes here. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. 
that whatever includes more than what he then goes on to list. It literally is anything that reflects the perspective of this world, the desires of your flesh, as opposed to who God is and what he values. Anything that is inconsistent with the character of Christ must be killed, must be destroyed. And you notice, too, just how radical the word there is. Not uh, tamed, not shoved into a corner, killed. It's got to die. It's a radical thing. And notice also the kinds of sins that Paul highlights. He starts with sexual sin because it's such a powerful force in our lives. And he looks at it from every direction, from outward action to inward attitude. But then he also, right in that list, throws in greed. That's a bit of a a shocker, isn't it? Uh, He's just talked about things that any good Christian would agree are awful. And then he suddenly says, yeah, greed's there as well. And actually, in some ways, it's even worse because it's idolatry. Greed means you are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. It means you are placing supreme value on a thing rather than the one who made all things. And you are finding some form of ultimate worth or satisfaction or pleasure in that which at best should only be a servant and never a master. He goes on to relationships. He talks about attitudes like anger and rage and malice. He deals with sins of the tongue, slander, filthy language, and lying. And he tells us to get rid of them completely. Put them to death. Now, he doesn't tell us how in this passage, but that's why we look at all of Scripture whenever we consider any issue. And in Romans 8, he clues us in. We put them to death by the power and action of the Holy Spirit. You do not have the capacity to change yourself. Only the Spirit can do that. The Spirit's usual tools in that are his or the ordinary means of grace his word and prayer and the fellowship of the saints around you those are the means he uses but it requires a, a, a predisposition on our part that i view my sin as the most deadly enemy i face and i would rather see it dead than see anything else i want to see it at my feet not no longer even twitching And so if you actually regard your sin as a worst enemy than anyone or anything else that might stand in opposition to you, you begin to catch on to what God wants of us here. Because anything outside of us, He can deal with. Our sin is what can genuinely, genuinely mess us up. It it brings to mind a very famous statement by a a brother of ours from the 17th century named John Owen, who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And we need to view it in precisely that way. It's the deadliest enemy I face. Now, this is the negative side of the Christian life, the negative side of discipleship or of growing in holiness. It is unfortunately the one that people think of the most, which is the idea of mortification of sin or putting to death that which is displeasing to God. However, this is not self-effort, nor is this self-righteousness. It's not a good work that earns us favor with God. This is by His grace, rooted in the gospel, based on what He has done. This is His power working in us. And how do you do it? Well, the key is very simply what we've already seen. Set your mind and affections on Jesus. It is not primarily by thinking about my sin, but primarily thinking about Christ. And what do you do when temptation comes your way? You run to Jesus. And what do you do when you give in to temptation and you sin? What does repentance look like? You run to Jesus. 
That's what is involved at every stage of, the, of, of, of this whole life and this whole process. Every time, in every situation, you flee to Him. So that's the negative side. We're to get rid of everything inconsistent with what is, is true of, of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. The Christian life is not primarily or even fundamentally a matter of what you don't do. Uh, you are getting rid of that. You are taking that off in order to put on something vastly and infinitely better. And you are to clothe yourselves with the character of Christ. Because you are God's chosen people, because you are already holy in the sense that you have been set apart for Him, and because He loves you deeply, put on these things, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, peace, thankfulness. Now, can you even think of a better description of Jesus than those? Isn't that a perfect way to describe who our, who our Savior is like? And what He's telling us here to do fits in with that whole big biblical picture of God's destiny for us as God's people, which is to be made like Him so that we perfectly reflect His character and faithfully represent His rule. Like the fruit of the Spirit, these things define what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ, which means these define what should have been from the start true of His image bearers. And this is why a truly holy person, a faithful disciple of Jesus, is not known primarily by the things they don't do, but is known primarily by the fact that they remind people of Christ. That when people get around us, they just find themselves thinking about Jesus. It was certainly true of the first disciples. Uh, they noticed they had been with Jesus. It was kind of obvious that he'd rubbed off on them that much. And that's what it's to be like for us as well that we look like Him, remind us of Him, which also means, by the way, that we will provoke the same responses as He did. People will both be drawn to us and, in many cases, hate us. And that's what Jesus said we could expect in this world. There is nothing so unsettling as delightful holiness. And there is nothing that rebukes the world more than that kind of reflection of Christ. A truly holy person is a delightful person and a richly human person as well because this is what we were made to be to begin with so how do we do this same way by the power of the holy spirit by fixing our thoughts and affections on christ and then paul throws in another th another element which i alluded to earlier which is that we do it in the worship and admonition of the church we do it in the context of the body of Christ. It's why he goes just so seamlessly from talking about what we put, the, put on, about letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We teach and admonish one another as we sing with gratitude to God, which means then that the two tests that Paul gives of biblical worship in 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you know this, but Scripture gives us some pretty clear instructions on what we're supposed to do when we gather. This is not just up to us to decide. Uh, we do the things we do because we find clear warrant in Scripture for those things, and we're even given how and the reasons for doing those things. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul makes it very clear not only is everything to be done decently and in order, but specifically that it's all to be done for the glory of God, and it's all to be done for the edification of the saints. Not the entertainment of the saints, but the edification of the saints. It's all to be done in a way that truly does lift up Christ and exalt Him and draw our attention to Him. 
And it's to be done in a way that reshapes us, that literally builds us up in the image of Jesus, that makes us more like Him. And that is why the gathering of the body of Christ is an essential component of the life of any disciple. You cannot be a biblical disciple apart from the full scope of the ministry of a local church. It just isn't biblically a possibility. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that, uh, that when we do mission work, if we're to share the gospel, that has to mean we're to plant churches as well. Because we're to make disciples, and you can only make disciples in the context of churches. So it turns out that doing all things to the glory of God and doing all things for the edification of the saints are the very instruments that God uses to make us like Jesus. Discipleship happens in that context. The worship, the teaching, and the fellowship of a local church. And God uses the formal elements of our gatherings and the informal elements of our life together to mold us into the image. So that's, that's a summary, a quick summary from this passage of what it means to be a Christian. The Christian life is a matter of gospel truth and its consequences. Discipleship is based in doctrine, is ba- actually based in grace and rooted in doctrine. We do what God tells us to do because of what He has done for us in Christ and who He has made us to be in Him. And the life of Christian discipleship can be summed up in these three parts. Fix your thoughts and affections on Christ. Ruthlessly put to death all the sin that is in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And clothe yourself with the character of Christ. And do it all in the fellowship, the worship, and the teaching of the local church. Now I want to just, just close with a few final admonitions. First of all, this only applies if you're a Christian. This is meaningless if you're not. Hopefully you have, have heard the gospel as we've gone through this passage today. But just in case you haven't, let me, let me make it clear that God is a holy God who hates sin. That every human being on the face of the earth is a sinner, is in fact a rebel against God, and is deserving of the wrath of God. That God in infinite mercy, in, in literally undescribable grace, instead of giving us what we deserve, chose to become a man in the person of Jesus, who then lived the life, the perfect life of the image of God that we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die because we hadn't lived the life we should have lived, and then rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death and hell. And he now commands everyone everywhere to repent of their rebellion against God and put their trust in him to save them. And everyone who does so will have their sins forgiven, will become a new creature in Christ, will be guaranteed eternity in infinite joy with Him in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the gospel. And if you have never done that, if you have never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, then everything I've said will be meaningless until you do that. Furthermore, it is the only decision that that means anything at all for the rest of your life. It is the most essential thing. And literally, heaven and hell are at stake. I would urge you to talk to someone else in this church There's many people here who can help you to understand that better and and to respond as God has called on us to respond. For the rest of us who are already followers of Jesus, just, just a few admonitions. First, please beware of any reductionistic understandings of discipleship, of any understanding of discipleship that is less than the totality of what Scripture calls on us to do. And in our pragmatic age, the temptation is strong to reduce it 
to a program. Complete this study course. Do these six to ten lessons followed by inductive Bible study. Master these spiritual disciplines and you, have now, you are now a disciple of Jesus. Now, none of those things are bad, but they don't encompass biblical discipleship. Make sure you understand the point of discipleship is the complete transformation of all of life into the image of Jesus. And it is a process that begins at conversion and ends when we see Him face to face. None of us are ever beyond the need to grow as disciples of Jesus in the context of His church. Second, beware of the twin ditches of legalism on the one side and carelessness about sin on the other. Uh, when, when Christians talk about holiness, when we talk about the life of discipleship, uh, we so often fall into one of those two ruts. Uh, legalism is, in my mind, the besetting sin of serious Christians. It's adding rules to God's law. It's attempting obedience in the power of the flesh. It's obeying in order to obtain God's favor. And very often, it's looking down on others who don't perform as well as you perceive that you do. And that is not discipleship. Someone who is obnoxious in their holiness is not holy at all. And someone who is bound by a sense of constant guilt that they haven't done enough hasn't understood the gospel yet. So beware of that ditch. And I would say for the people in this church, that's the most likely one you're going to fall in. And I think all of us tend to fall in it a lot, the, the, the ditch of legalism. On the other hand, carelessness about sin is the besetting sin of pop Christianity in our day. The failure to realize just how deceptive and destructive sin is. Thinking that God really doesn't care how we live, that he's just sort of an indulgent uh, grandparent up in the sky. And as a grandparent, yes, we are indulgent. It's wonderful. It's a lot of fun. But that's not who God is. Not hating sin as it deserves. Not realizing that the very point of the Christian life is to become like Christ. Jesus did not save us in our sin. He saved us from it. And so a casual or careless attitude about sin, uh, the, the sort of thing that says, you know, basically, as Paul said, let us sin that grace may abound. That is another ditch that we have to avoid. Make sure that we keep in mind the goal is radical transformation. But the foundation is the radical grace of God. And those two go together. And then finally, don't try this alone. Don't try this alone. It is no mistake that Paul seamlessly passes from a description of holiness to a discussion of the corporate life of the church. And any attempt to be a disciple on your own and just maybe occasionally use the church as one of the tools you use that maybe helps you a little, but it's really up to you, that's, that's, that's going to lead to disaster. God meant for us to do this together. And specifically in, in the covenant relationships of the body of Christ, we have an obligation to each other to be God's instruments in each other's lives to grow in holiness, to grow as disciples of Jesus. I have an obligation to you, you have an obligation to me, and all of us have an obligation to one another that we are God's instruments in each other's lives. And we need to take it that seriously because this is the very point for which God saved us, to be conformed to His image. So, in the grace of God given to us in the gospel, and in the fellowship of the people of God, fix your heart and mind on Jesus, put sin to death, and clothe yourself with the character of Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we bless You and praise You for the Gospel. The things we're, we're called on to do here would be horrifyingly impossible if it weren't for what is already said to be true. If it weren't for what You have done for us in Christ and who You have made us to be in Him. Father, I pray that You would give us both a holy hatred of sin and a holy delight in Your character and in the destiny You have given us. That You would fix our minds on You and You would change us to be like Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.